everybody, and welcome to the Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. I am Benjamin Mose, the Director of Manufacturing Technology, and I'm here with... Stephen Lamarca, AMT's Manufacturing Technology Analyst. Steve, it's good to see you, man. How's everything going? Dude, it's good to be back. I had a great uh, vacation last week. Yeah. We had, you and I, even though I was on vacation, we had a great 10 o'clock meeting uh, last Thursday at the range. We get, did. Some, get some let out. <laughs> That was exciting. It's been ages since I've been to the to the gun range. Me too. Yeah. I, I, you know, fortunately, this during the pandemic, I did get a chance to go uh, uh, clay shooting a few times. Nice. But uh, yeah, hadn't uh, other than you know you know the shotgun sports, I hadn't really taken anything to uh, any single projectile firearm <laughs> to uh, a range. Yeah, we got in to a the while, range, actually. We got to the range and then the hundred yard was shut down, and I brought my right. uh, bolt action to uh, get. Uh, calibrated for the 100 yards, make sure the ammo is <laughs> shooting well. And of course, he says the 100 yard range is closed. So we uh, waited for the 50 yard range. But I was, to be honest, I was a little hesitant to shoot the bolt action at 50 yards. Um, yeah. Probably because that rifle I use for shooting five to 600 yards. So in scale, I'm shooting 10 times closer <laughs> than I would with that, with that type of rifle. What cartridge are you firing it's out of that bolt? Just a 308. 308? Yeah. Uh, what is the barrel length? 26 inch oh 26 that's a long boy it's a standard 700 okay yeah you're right you know 26 is uh yeah it's... um i know 20 through 26 is about but usually typically on average they're 24 inches yeah. i was asking just because um assuming you're firing a 165 grain or 168 grain projectile uh 308 mm -hmm. out of around 24 inch barrel if you zero it for 50, you should be zeroed for 200 now, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's the fun part. Once I got figured out, figured out my 20x scope, 20-power uh, scope, and how to <laughs> get it down to uh, something at the 50-yard range, once I figured that out and actually got comfortable at the shooting uh, rest, because it's not a shooting bench. It was a little awkward. Um, yeah. I was able to work on my breathing and alignment and work on uh, not necessarily zeroed, but the group size. That's my main target. To verify the yeah, because I the I was, precision, the precision, not yeah. the accuracy, <laughs> yeah. the precision. That's right. Because I left it You're going for repeatability, not necessarily hitting the mark. So I left it slightly low, but I, I wanted to see what the group size with uh, you know shooting ten round groups and you know shooting in a not so stable condition uh, position yeah. and working on my technique. It's actually pretty fun. I, I enjoy that that time. Not I'm, I'm glad I took the bolt action to the to the fifty yard range. Yeah, you know it's actually been a while since like i mean years since i shot like i did last thursday because um you know the other rifle that i have is is also a remington 700 and it's a um it's a 30-06 right. and it was my deer rifle that i used in college uh -huh. never killed a single deer with it but <laughs> that's neither here nor there um it's but, left uh, left-handed bolt right it's a left-handed bolt action, yeah, left-handed yeah. 700. Um, but uh, in high school, I was on, uh, at our military school, I was I was on the 22 rifle team and we shot 22, we competed and we did Olympic style uh, shooting 22s at like quarter size bulls yep. at uh, 50 feet. And, you know, it was really therapeutic and relaxing because, you know, you're just paper punching. Right. 
but uh, and normally especially these days i think shooting at paper is super boring but then i realized you know i just don't like shooting my 30-06 <laughs> yeah. and this this the new rifle that i have the fn um which is chambered in in 556 it's it 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 really took me back to uh that the competition style shooting because it was so pleasant other than i don't have to rack a bolt because it's semi-automatic right it was so nice just like that low recoil yeah it's a really loud it's a lot louder than a 22 yeah. but um you know it was just it had that match accuracy that i was not expecting <laughs> you know i was expecting to be happy to you know get my shots at 50 yards in like you know a pie plate at right. least that's the standard for deer hunting if you can if you can hit a pie plate at 100 yards you can kill a deer but um the, uh, I was really impressed by the action, and it was just really therapeutic. It was yeah. nice, um, that nice pace, yep. uh, and the thing shot like a laser too. I do feel bad for the guy shooting next to me because my 308's got a muzzle break <laughs> and yeah. just blast going everywhere. It's indoor range, but I mean, they're yeah. shooting 308 also. I mean, they're uh, shooting at a, a semi-automatic, so. Yeah, it was it was odd being so comfortable shooting there <laughs> yeah. uh, when usually shooting indoors is right. like the least comfortable right. thing. It's nice shooting indoors because you don't have to compensate for like wind yeah. uh, yes. and stuff like that. It's a nice like like clean room vacuum style environment that's not comfortable for you as right. a shooter, but great if you're trying to dial something in. Um, and I think there was a gentleman who came in with like an AK. That thing was barking. <laughs> yeah. I didn't notice yeah. your rifle that much, but okay, I did good. notice the guy with like the AK. That thing barks. Yeah. And then another guy came in and I was startled by how quiet. And the next thing you know, I look over, he's fired. This guy, um, I think they were on it. He was on a date. Him right. and his uh, significant other, they were yeah. shooting a uh, suppressed 300 blackout. That's that was cool. Because cool, that thing, that thing sounded like a fart. <laughs> That's fun. Fun times at the range. I can't wait to go again. We should try and do some, uh, develop our own little competition. I started one uh, shooting 22s with my buddy Scott. So maybe we should yeah. start one, uh, with the to do three. At least go somewhere with like a dueling tree. Yeah. Or, yeah. uh, at least bring Russ again so he can put us all to shame. <laughs> he likes to draw pictures with his bullet holes. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, I, uh, an interesting experience happened this morning when I was taking my daughter to, uh, daycare. Uh, so got in the car, left the community, got onto the major uh, main road, and I hit traffic. Oh, you know, man. It was, like, it was a really strange feeling. And for the past eight months or whatever, how long it's been, I haven't hit any traffic until today. And it took Clearly me a while. You've to... been avoiding 66. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't have to go to 66. So, uh, you know, it took me a while to figure out that I was actually stuck in traffic because I was assuming it was just a, a delay in the lights or something. But once I hit, once I saw a couple of cycles that, of lights and we didn't go anywhere then we realized wow this is a strange feeling <laughs> yeah apparently there's like, a big accident where they shut down two of the three lanes and it, it was pretty severe when they had the fire truck the ambulance but by the time i got to it they already had everything pulled over but it was strange yeah you know virginia's back to normal and uh or rather and poor proper properly more accurately said that uh people here are disregarding the pandemic unfortunately when uh you know virginia's back to normal with their traffic accidents yeah, yeah. and bad driving i gotta admit virginia we're the best it, at in it, my man. area there's not a lot of good drivers <laughs> all right let's get into some articles man yeah you, uh, you want to kick it off with the first one 
Yeah, dude. Um, so I saw, so Tech Trends popped up this article from the Times of San Diego that uh, a, I think Rady, or I don't think it's Rady, I'm pretty sure it's Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego just received a million dollars to expand their uh, additive for medical, uh, um, their 3D printing for medical solutions. And I, I just think that's the coolest thing because I got to, I was blessed to attend um, the East Conference with Jewel in Arkansas with Jules and Adam um, a couple of years ago. Right. And one of the things that I distinctly remember, the, of all the students, incredible students that we got to meet and hear what they were doing, especially with regarding with regard to the manufacturing industry, um, this one student, his name was Arkham, and I forget how old he was. I want to say he was like, in this like single digits of age little guy. and little guy and his, his thing that he was um, showing off at East was uh, he was born without a leg. This, sure. this kid was born without a leg um, and the, his parents' health insurance only would only provide a prosthetic leg, his second leg, a prosthetic, um, a new one once every three years. Right. And being a growing boy, you know, once one prosthetic every three years isn't going to keep up with, you know, his growth spurts. Yeah. So anyone that's uh, had his, to buy clothes for or shoes for kids will find <laughs> out quickly. That is a long time for kids. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's not soon enough, yeah. especially, you know, when he's supposed to keep up with the, has to keep up with the rest of his class. Um, and so his teacher, he got, you know, his teacher helped him, introduced him to like 3D printing mm -hmm. and introduced him to CAD software, um, specifically Tinkercad, which cool. I believe is a Autodesk um, product that is a web-based, entirely web-based CAD software um, that is really easy to use. Like if you, it, it's, it's almost like virtual Legos, sure. it's that easy. And gets him introduced with this and all of a sudden, you know, months later i'm sure this kid's printing his own prosthetics oh, to that, keep up with his growth that's awesome and i told you all that to tell you if there is one application that needs that, that absolutely warrants additive manufacturing it is medical reasons for children <laughs> you know when they're growing so quickly and a batch of parts isn't necessary but one specifically made part uh, is needed is absolutely needed and with pretty quick turnaround time uh it's additive and it's really cool to find out that this children's hospital is getting a million dollars to put towards additive manufacturing for uh children's medical reasons you know that is exciting it's really exciting one, one thing that's perplexed me is um trying to maintain my medical data so like when you go to the doctor's office i get a sheet of paper and then I get some immunization records. I don't know what to do with that stuff. I, it's a, I, I have a drawer full of my medical stuff. Um, I, I don't know how to trend that stuff over time. I can't see how well I'm doing. You know, simple stuff like that. It, trying to put Wait. all my medical data in one place is such a pain. I don't think you want to see that trend. I, I don't want to, but I mean, <laughs> at the same time. So like the idea of, you know, if you design your prosthetic at year, say six, you know, being able to modify it and then, scale it up as you grow is a matter of a few button pushes, right? Being able to control your data uh, yeah. is very, very profound in, in healthcare. And I think that's a interesting takeaway that, you know, if you're delegating the ability to design your own, say, prosthetics, 
you have control over that design. You could, of course, spice it up if you need to, but you know, being able to change it as you, um, as the conditions change, or having other variants, or having some input into it, uh, I think that's really interesting. And you know, to be honest, I think in general, healthcare healthcare costs need to be reduced quite a bit. So I think that's mm-hmm. hopefully a step in the right direction too, and reducing the cost of these prosthetics. But yeah. that's interesting. It- uh, the article what I have talks about uh, CDC. Um, so the title is CDC awards one and a half million for research to reduce exposures to workplace hazards through robotic technology. So it's a very interesting uh, article that uh, goes over from Robotics Tomorrow about uh, CDC's uh, efforts, uh, occupational health and safety. So it's not directly related to the COVID efforts re- recently. It's not necessarily related to getting people out of, you know, um, you know, uh, getting catching COVID from each other. It's a, a bigger project about um, improving workplace uh, safety and health. Uh, so one of the, art, uh, one of the uh, paragraphs talks about uh, in manufacturing, lifting heavy objects can lead to costly and disabling work-related uh, musculoskeletal disorders. Um, they propose wearing, getting to wearable robotics, which is growing in uh, technology and uh, maturity. I've seen a couple of companies using that uh, Ford had a, a pretty good extensive testing uh, a couple of months ago. I think they wrapped it up where they had um, uh, like upper body skeletal suits. Um, uh, NASA did a couple uh, tests a couple of years ago where they had uh, gloves that would help you in one direction. So it'd help you clasp, I think. Okay. So obviously retracting your fingers is not the, say, costly uh, task. But uh, clasping uh, objects was an interesting thing, and they developed a glove just to clasp and hold on to stuff. So if you need to hold on to something for a long time, the glove was meant to reduce your uh, load there. Uh, so they're working with the researchers at the University of Illinois at Chicago uh, to, to further develop uh, wearable, to, wearable robots and sensors uh, and using so, uh, soft wearable uh, electronics. Um, they're also looking at... Uh, further adoption for robotic cells in cages uh, through uh, using cobots and making those more safe uh, uh, in addition to exoskeletons. Um, and of course, they mentioned uh, autonomous vehicles and drones. And uh, I think we ran across an article where they had, um, say, autonomous forklifts, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there is a lot of heavy stuff that is moving around. I remember one of the heaviest things in the old factory was the scrap barrel. So all the chips and swarf that was coming off the machine will go in this 55-gallon drum. Right. Now what do you do with this giant 55-gallon drum of Inconel 718 chips, right? That stuff is not light. So That's money. <laughs> that's money. You better get that to the recycling center quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, moving that around, just getting that to the dock, that's, you know, fairly difficult work. So automating and uh, uh, getting people off those tasks was uh, fairly important. So I thought, you know, a very interesting project that, you know, Air, uh, human ergonomics and human safety, I think, are kind of underrated in manufacturing. Well, we talk about tack times, we talk about operational efficiency, we talk about closed loop manufacturing, um, but human fatigue, uh, human ergonomics, uh, those are you know less characterized. And I think uh, you know in the future state in manufacturing that will become more of a design point. Yeah, and plus, I I always want to see more. Uh more people coming out with exoskeleton development. <laughs> I, I just really want one of those, those power loaders from alien. That'd be cool. 
I want, I want a, that to become real already. I want a saddle on on uh, the Dyna, Dyna, uh, Boston Dynamics dog. <laughs> so I just ride that <laughs> spot around. You ride spot around. had a saddle. <laughs> yeah. That's all they need. Just a saddle. Those, can, those things can haul a lot of weight yeah. for how small and adorable they are. They do. They they do have a lot of uh, uh, pinch uh, areas though. Yeah. Oh yeah. They are dangerous. They are like dangerous. all automation, and you know, it's not a toy. <laughs> <laughs> that is thank you for bringing back to reality steve automation yeah. doesn't have to be a toy uh let's talk about your article on uh from engine builder dude yeah so um another uh i was really pleasantly surprised to find out yesterday that uh tech trends has started pulling uh cnc and machining articles from engine builder magazine's website enginebuildermag.com and uh one of the first ones one of the first articles from them that I read, and they actually, Tech Trends pulled a handful, um, was CNC machines keep the spindle moving. And the spindle, of course, the S in the word spindle is not an S, but a dollar sign, which is <laughs> a cute touch. But um, it's basically this really, I don't want to say long-winded, but it's a lengthy article um, basically emphasizing how important CNC manufacturing is to the aftermarket. Sure. Um, and I say aftermarket because, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious that OEM parts uh, and what becomes OEM, what, what parts become OEM down the road uh, are not made in somebody's small job shop with uh, three to four uh, operators in there, but are actually come from plants, factories and plants that have, all, have already employed CNC uh, milling and machining and turning and whatnot. Um, but uh, this article was really geared towards, you know, taking those small shops and smaller uh, um, part providers, mm -hmm. especially in the aftermarket who make, you know, one really good part, whether it's for racing or what, whatever. And, you know, let's say a small company makes, a clutch fork release pivot um, and they, they machine it, but it's, they machine it on something that's manual. Right. And, you know, originally when it was, when they first developed it and started making them, they're made by hand. We're well, not by hand, but by, but by manually um, machining the part and it goes into some customer buys it goes into their race car that, uh, race car wins and all of a sudden that race team wants more of those because right. they need to make more of those cars and other cars i'm exaggerating sure. but uh, more teams find out this part was pivotal into uh the success of that car and team so more teams want it what does that little company do to keep up with their demand right you know, especially if it's a three to four, well, a three to four person operation, you know, they can either hire more people and buy more manual machines, mm -hmm. or they can reap all of the profits of their new orders. And to keep up with those orders, they can go to CNC machining. Right. Yeah. And that's pretty much what this article is trying to sell here. It, it is funny because that is a uh, area in the business that we kind of forget because we're involved in fairly advanced technologies in our daily discussions, but the transition from manual equipment to CNC is a fairly big step for a lot of small businesses. You know, they've developed yeah. or developed a process or a product that's very innovative, and you know they've 
tinkered around with it, whatever equipment they had, and now they're trying to scale up to meet production needs. So it's a very- yeah, and, and, and I think the article also helps to emphasize the importance of, you know, the aftermarket manufacturers mm-hmm. to, you know, both, you know, the consumer and uh, auto racing um, uh, markets right. and, and, and customers that, you know, if, sure, you might not need to make a whole lot of parts now, but what if your part really does blow up right. in the good way yep. and become popular? How are you going to keep up? And and in some cases, it's rare, but in some cases, aftermarket parts um, do become OEM for future generations sure. of a model car. It can't. It's not unheard of. It can right. be done, and the only way they can do that is that that a, a manufacturer a small manufacturer can do that is scale up or sell your IP. All right. The article also covers a couple of key elements on um, multi-axis. Uh, so it talks about adding a, another axis and also it's related to fixturing. Uh, so in prep, right. in prep for this meeting, Steve and I were talking about uh, the illustrations that are shown here. In some cases, uh, it's porting some of the cylinder head or the, uh, the valve uh, on the valve access. Important polish. And, uh, you know, that's a critical feature, but also a benefit of these multi-axis sections or these add-ons was deburring and chamfering, right? So if I got this very expensive part and I take it off and I have to manually deburr it, that's a lot of risk you're putting on the operator. And having scrapped Mm -hmm. parts like that before because I accidentally scratch a ceiling surface or if I drop it or if I mishandle it or if I do something inconsequentially wrong but does become a problem, uh, it's it's a lot of risk and you know, having the machine do those kind of features is, takes a lot of stress off the operator. Um, right. Right. Because, you know, in, in the operator has to, you know, the operator shouldn't have to do more than one thing. Sure. You know, they should just be monitoring the machine because they've got all, they've got a huge burden on them to make sure that machine is, is performing. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Uh, the operator, is involved a lot with making micro adjustments as the production process is going on. Right. And if they're distracted by doing something that is handwork, right. um, uh, and, and, and human handwork, human human work in general is not 100% repeatable the right. way machine work is. Right. It's different every time. Um, so is that manual deburring going to be the same every time? No. And it's certainly not going to be the same and and may even uh, uh, scrap apart Mm -hmm. a good expensive part and expensive material if they're distracted by the machine doing something different and an alarm going off. And I mean, there's a reason why, you know, there's only one Mona Lisa and (laughs) Da Vinci didn't come out with a batch of them. Sure. Because it it, it can't be done. Right. Like like that, that kind of work that artisan, uh, that, that craftsmanship isn't as repeatable as some people would like to think. Yeah. And you have to take those con- things in consideration. And also the uh, connection to that was the uh, uh, fixturing that they have on some of these uh, illustrations. And they talk about being able to switch your parts over quickly. And I think the two are fairly related, right? So being able to fixture uh, for either quick changes or a variety of different parts is uh, fairly important. Uh, and it helps your production line but also talking about connecting your fixturing to your access capability so you can do other stuff or free up your operator to do stuff that's valuable to uh, to the organization. Um, so it's a really good article, Steve. I'm glad you found it. And we got, I'm glad we got to talk about engines. We don't talk about engines enough on our 
And I sure. Realized... I'm, I'm glad we have a new uh, article provider on Tech Trends. Yep. Yep. That was really pleasant to see that. The article that I've got is on, uh, it's actually a research paper out of Japan. Uh, it talks about on machine and in process surface metrology for precision manufacturing. Nice. Uh, on in last week's tech report, I also talked about um, uh, uh, in machine metrology, surface metrology on grinding equipment and kind of the challenges that were um, uh, on that or for that specific machine about uh, environmental conditions. You've got, um, you know, um, uh, lubricants, you've got rough surfaces uh, and talks about some of the article talked about some of the uh, challenges overcoming that it overcame to be able to measure in machine. Uh, this research paper actually takes a little bit different approach. So it does talk about the different techniques that are available to do in machine um, metrology, surface inspection, um, some lasers, inferometers, things like that. But my big takeaway is towards the back of the, um, the uh, paper. So it does talk about the importance of quality control, but also talks about the requirements of tasks and tasks of on machine and in process metrology. Uh, so what, what can be done and what is feasible uh, and the type of things that can be done. Uh, but the big takeaway is the calibration and traceability. So now we're marrying, you know, uh, the metrology world and the manufacturing or subtractive manufacturing world. And, you know, you've got to combine some of those different philosophies. And, of course, in quality, you've got uh, equipment that you could trace back to some kind of standard and the frequency of how often you've calibrated that equipment. So that's a fairly big takeaway here is, you know, Sure, you can do in, in process or on machine inspection, but what are the traceabilities and how often do you calibrate that machine or that element of the machine? And that's one of the, the key takeaways from the research papers. Um, you know, there's always air built in the machine. How are you compensating for the machine? But uh, the individual elements that are uh, using for uh, quality control, how do you calibrate those different elements and how do you trace those elements back to uh, a standard? Um, right. Also, an interesting thing is they talk about data flow since you are inspecting uh, this equipment. And this research was done last year. Uh, so it talks about how to, uh, you know, some strategies on collecting this data and also sampling strategies. Do you have to measure every single part or uh, some best practices? So it does cover a fairly big gamut of quality, basically quality infrastructure on machine. So I thought it was a fairly good um, uh, research paper. It does get into a little bit of closed loop feedback uh, manufacturing, which you know, that's, that's an interesting and a whole big bucket unto itself. And uh, yeah. yeah, I'd rather just not get into that at that point because it's <laughs> the, the, our research paper is pretty long and uh, getting to section four, if you guys get into it, I highly recommend skipping to that section uh, and reading over the, the uh, calibration, traceability, and uh, uh, data flows and sample strategies. It was really good. Awesome. Well, Steve, this is a really good episode. I'm glad uh, we're able to talk about firearms and uh, Heck yes. advancements in uh, uh, additive uh, and some engine building. Engine building. Oh, listen, inspection. man, all it's one of my favorite things about this industry is that all passions, you know, whether what kind of whatever hobby you have, it all leads back to manufacturing <laughs> in some way. That's spot you on. I like, I like that. Well, thanks. Heck yes. Well, Steve, where can they find more info about us? Find more info info on us at uh, amtnews.org. Subscribe to us, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.